As, uh, as Sean mentioned, we're finishing up our Unveiled series um, this morning, so we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking at the second half of the Gospel, and the title, Unveiled, coming from the fact that the purpose of John's Gospel is to reveal or unveil the glory of Christ to us. And so our prayer has been and, and is today, again, just that the Lord would be revealing himself to all of us through his word, transforming us by his glory that we might better serve him. And so today we're finishing up the book, closing with chapter 21. So as Ben said, if you have your Bibles, chapter 21, Gospel of John, we'll be going through the whole chapter. I'll read verses 1 through 7 and then pray and we'll start. John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of your boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this time that we have together gathered here positioning ourselves together to hear from you. And Lord, I pray you say that your word is living and active, that it's not merely a a historical document recording for us facts of the past that we should believe, but Lord, it is alive. And through it, we see the God who is alive, our resurrected Savior, as we see him here in this text and envision him now where he sits, reigned in glory, reigning in glory. And Lord, I pray that you would do your work of opening our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to behold your glory, that we'd be transformed by it, that love would be inflamed in our hearts, that where we have begun to wander or grow cold to you or indifferent or calloused, that you would admonish us this morning as a loving father would his beloved child. So, Lord, help us, I pray. Let Jesus be our only aim in this time, seeing him and treasuring him for all of his infinite glory. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Have you ever failed at something that you initially thought you'd be really good at. Something that you just envision yourself doing, maybe it's something in the future that you could, that you've already spent so much time daydreaming about, of like this thing, I'm gonna do this in the future, and then it's gonna lead to this, and it's gonna be so great, and just, it fall flat on your face. You realize that you've failed at whatever it is that you thought that you would be great at. Um, I had a former teammate of mine, I'm not gonna put him on blast because this isn't a story about my failures, it's a story about someone else's failures, so I can share it. But this former teammate of mine, I played football in college, University of Virginia, and this guy, he was older than me, and he swore up and down that he was going to be a rapper. Like, he swore he was going to be a rapper. And this is the guy that he would come up to us in the locker room and just every day, without fail, he'd come up to us and he'd start flowing, and he'd start rapping something and just like making up stuff on the spot and just like looking for your approval, like, 
right, right, right? And you'd be like, yeah, I see how you put those cat and hat and stuff like that together. Like, <laughs> like his rhymes were so basic, just bad, but like he believed in his mind that this was his future. This guy, even to this day, it's, it's, it's really more sad than it's funny, but it's, it's still kind of funny. Even to this day, he swears he's going to be a rapper. He's like three years older than me. He's like mid-30s, and he's still, Facebook has been the worst thing for him. Facebook, he's like posting all of his songs, his videos. He's commenting on his own songs. He's the only one commenting on them, the only one really like watching them, and then doing the uncardinal, uh, the unfavorable sin of liking your own comment. You're not supposed to do that, but he's the only one doing it because no one else is watching this stuff. But what should have happened a long time ago with my uh, former teammate? In my opinion, he should have recognize something's not going right here. There's, there's a failure here. Either I need to do something different or I need to most likely change into an entirely different career path and do something else with my life. He should have found himself at the point where this is not working well. I've, I've failed at this and, and move on to something else. And just that concept of failure Failing at something that you thought initially that you would be good at, I think, is at the heart of this text. This, this gospel ends with a narrowing in on one of the chief apostles of Jesus and the apostle Peter and finding him in the midst of his failure, his, his failure to follow Christ as he thought he would. He thought that he would be the brave apostle that even when Jesus was being arrested and was about to be crucified and imprisoned and ultimately killed, that this would be the apostle when all others failed him, that this would be the, the apostle that would stand by him. And yet he failed miserably, denying the Lord three times. Every time someone came up to him and said, don't you know this man? Aren't you related to this man, connected to this man? And he denied it. And the third time, the Lord had told him, you're going to deny me three times, and the rooster is going to crow, and you're going to know that I saw all this beforehand. And sure enough, he, on the third time, he heard the rooster crow. He went out, wept bitterly, abandoned his Savior when Jesus was killed for him. And we find ourselves at the end of this book now. Jesus has been killed, but he's been resurrected um, he's appeared once to Mary, he's appeared to the disciples a second time in a locked room, but it still seems like when we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 21, and even as the story progress, progresses, it'll become more clear, that Peter is still in a state of denial. When we look at all the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that even like when Jesus revealed himself to Mary, it says that the, apostles, the uh, disciples were still skeptical, they weren't sure if he really appeared or not. Even when he appeared to some of the disciples in that locked room, uh, many of them believed that it was just a ghost, some type of figment of their imagination, that it wasn't really the resurrected Christ. And so some of them, and particularly Peter, were still in doubt. And so my, my, my point of, uh, my central focus on this sermon today is I believe that this entire chapter, this entire story of Peter sort of takes us through a full cycle of what discipleship looks like, and I would break it down into four different stages or phases that Peter finds himself in. And, and with all of you here today, regardless of where you are, if you're a believer or not, or where you are in your walk with the Lord, in one of these places, you ought to be able to find yourself. And so the goal is to sort of see where I would identify with Peter at what point in the story and what can I learn from him. So here are the four sections. And I told John earlier today that I apologize. I've been slipping into this habit of alliterating all of my points, so they all start with C. I won't do it the next time, but this is my last time. So these are the four stages Peter finds himself in. Number one, cold to Jesus. Some of you might resonate being in a state of being cold to Jesus or indifferent. Number two, coming to Jesus. Number three, commissioned by Jesus. And number four, corrected by Jesus. Cold to Jesus, coming to Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, corrected by Jesus. I think all of us should be able to find ourselves somewhere. Let's start with the first one, cold to Jesus. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, 
the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, many scholars on this opening section would argue, and I believe that they are right, that what we see in this scene, in this initial scene, when Peter uh, suggests that they go out to fish and he leaves some other disciples with him, is that this is actually an act of disbelief on Peter's part. It's Peter returning to his former livelihood, abandoning the, the call to uh, make other disciples of Christ that um, Jesus had, when he first called him, said to follow him in order that he might make him fishers of men. This is Peter returning to his former life. If you recall, um, this is exactly where Jesus originally found Peter. Peter and his brother Andrew were out fishing. This was their trade. They were fishermen. Jesus comes across them. He begins preaching to the crowd, and he uh, gets into Simon's or Peter's boat when he's preaching to him. And I think when you look at just that action of Peter's, we can get a little bit of an insight into what's probably going on through his mind. There's doubt that has crept into Peter's mind. There's confusion about what Jesus was going to do. This, this man that he had, had believed, that he had followed, um, had eventually died, had abandoned them, and he's not sure what's going on now. He's sort of just taking measures into his own hands, returning to what he knows, returning back to his old way of living because this Christian thing isn't panning out. And in that, I believe that a lot of us this morning might find ourselves resonating being in that type of state, finding ourselves in a, in a place where if you're a believer, maybe you've grown cold to Jesus. Um, this is whole Christian thing. You feel like some prayers haven't been answered the way that you wanted them to, or the progress that you've wanted to see in your marriage or relationships, or where you thought you would be by this point in your career that you thought Christ would bring you to, all these other concerns that you have, you believe that Jesus has let you down on, has left you in a place of coldness or indifference. Or if you're just an unbeliever, if you if you're, wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ, you're basically in the same position here of Jesus is, is out there. He has nothing really to do with my life, has no real bearing on my life. What I am going to do is stick to what I know, stick to what I'm used to. And we see the result of Peter's decision to do just that. John intentionally mentions that they go out to fish and that they end up being unsuccessful. Verse 3 ends, they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. He attempted to return to his own way, uh, old way of life, and it was unsuccessful. It didn't bring the fruit that he thought it would bring. But we see, starting in verse 4, a shift that's initiated by Jesus himself of not leaving Peter in this state of turning his back and drifting away, but calling him back to himself, the resurrected Lord himself. So starting in verse 4, this would begin this second phase of Peter's discipleship, coming to Jesus. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Now, John is a, a masterful writer, and there's a bit of momentum that he begins to build up just in this opening line of verse 4, because literally the way that it opens is when it says, just as day was breaking, literally it'd be something more like just in the early morning, or when it was early morning, Jesus was standing on the shore. And if you read the entire uh, corpus of the Old Testament text up until this point, what you will see is that there is a, a pattern that the Old Testament uh, authors establish of certain events that happen during nighttime or when it's evening, when it's darkness covering the land, and other events that happen when it's morning or when it's light. And typically what you see is that um, a scene will take place when it's, when it's evening or when um, nighttime is the background. It's normally a scene of confusion or of the people of God struggling, of waiting for an answer uh, for God's deliverance, difficulty, and maybe uh, God just beginning the act 
of delivering them. It's all started during the nighttime. And then in the morning is often a scene where deliverance happens or when um, resolution has finally been accomplished, peace has been accomplished. So let me just give you a few examples to sort of let you see what, where John is coming from. So for instance, if you heard of the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of those ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, back in Genesis 19, um, in the evening is when these messengers come to Lot and they come to the city and a whole sketchy scene takes place where these wicked men try to abuse these angelic messengers during the evening. And then in the morning, this is what we read, 19, Genesis 19, 27 to 28. It says, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. God's enemies destroyed by the morning time. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, is the king Saul going to battle against his enemies and defeat of those enemies being accomplished in the morning. Again, he says, And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning. And in the morning watch and struck in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Even in the Psalters, when the psalmists are crying out to God for deliverance, there's this repeated theme of the morning being the time when God accomplishes his deliverance. Psalm 30, verse 5, many of you might know this verse. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. But when does joy come? In the morning. Psalm 46, 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Even in passages that refer to the Messiah, when the Old Testament prophets are looking forward to the Messiah, even King David himself, one of the most um, righteous men in the Old Testament with his faults, um, but even when he foresees one that will come from his lineage that will ultimately be the, the Savior of Israel, he speaks of the, the coming of this Messiah this way. He says, speaking of the Messiah, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. So these are the things that are repeatedly happening through the Old Testament. And so by the time that we get to John's gospel, it's no coincidence that when Peter is in the midst of being confused, feeling full of doubt, feeling betrayed, feeling foolish for following Christ, returning to his old way of life in the nighttime and not accomplishing anything that John immediately goes to. But in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. When morning came, there's no account of when Jesus got there, how he got there. It's just he paints the scene as when morning comes, there's Jesus, the one who has defeated the ultimate of uh, enemies for God's people in death, has accomplished God's salvation plan, has accomplished redemption. There he is standing on the shore. Yet it goes on, the disciples do not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children or boys, fellas, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now what's certainly happening in Peter's mind and what should be happening in our minds if, we, if we're uh, vaguely familiar with the account of the gospels is that this scene that starts to unfold here with Peter on the boat and an abundance of fish suddenly being caught should remind us of that time when Jesus first met Peter um, at the very beginning when he first called Peter back in Luke chapter 5. The same almost uh, identical event happens. They've been out fishing all night. Jesus comes to this, this uh, fisherman and Peter tells him to go cast his net. Peter's like, we've been out there all night. We haven't caught anything, but 
Since you're Jesus, I will, I'll do it. And it says in Luke chapter 5, 6 through 8, And when they had done this, letting down their nets on the side of the boat, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. My question is, why would Jesus now in John chapter 21 when he is seeking to restore Peter, this one that has deflected, fallen away from him, why would he choose this event, this similar event to how he first called Peter to restore him and bring him back to himself? I would argue that it's a way for Jesus to bring Peter back to the basics, so to speak. It's a way of Jesus taking Peter back to that initial point when he had first revealed himself to Peter when he first revealed his glory to Peter, reminding Peter of who this man was that he was now considering abandoning, taking him back to that point when he was floored, when he literally fell to his knees before Christ, and he was so overwhelmed by the glory of Christ that he wanted Christ to get away from him because it was consuming him, how glorious and just how terrifyingly awesome was this person that was in front of him. I would say that there is a, a pattern here that we might uh, model those of us who find ourselves in this position of feeling cold or indifferent to Christ, and that is taking ourselves back to what Christ has already done in our lives, how he first revealed himself to us, what he has done for us on the cross, how he has answered prayers for us in the past, how he has shown up in those darkest hours that we've had, how he's proven himself to be our God, our Lord, our shepherd throughout our lives. And that might be the point where our hearts can begin to soften and turn back to him. There's another just beautiful uh, element of this passage here with this um, abundance of fish suddenly springing up, and that is John is bringing his gospel full circle in that if you've read the beginning of the gospel of John, you might remember uh, one of the first showdowns that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And they come to him and he tells them that he is going to tear something down in three days and in three days he'll raise it back up again. What is that that he says he's going to tear down? He says the temple. He says, tear this temple down, I'm going to raise it back up in three days. And then John, the, the gospel writer, tells us that when he says that, he's referring to himself, his own body, that Jesus views himself as the real temple of the people of God, that the temple is, was a place in the Old Testament where peop, the people of God were to meet and come face to face with their creator, where reconciliation happened, where sacrifice and payment for sins happened. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of what the temple was meant to be. Tear this temple down, meaning kill me, I will raise back up and the temple will be rebuilt. So we might say, when we come to this section of Jesus's resurrection, that here he's standing as the rebuilt temple now, right? With that in mind, I want to uh, just draw your attention to the prophet Ezekiel, when hundreds of years before Jesus came into this world, God sweeps him up into a vision. He's looking out into the future, and he sees this symbolic imagery of this coming temple, this new temple, temple, quote-unquote. And what he sees in this vision is a river of life flowing out of the temple, and it flows into this... Uh, Dead Sea, where animals should be dead, where they shouldn't be alive. And when this fresh water flows into this sea from the temple, there's an abundance of fish that spring up, life that happens because of this living water that flows into the sea. And there's a number of parallels that just happen where it, it clearly seems that John means for us to see Jesus is the rebuilt temple, and he is the one that Ezekiel saw in this scene. 
So let me just read two verses of that. Ezekiel 47, 9 through 10, it says, speaking of this river that flows out through this new temple that Ezekiel sees, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engliam, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. So where this river flows out of the temple, there's an abundance of fish happening all over the place. And I think that we're meant to draw a connection as readers that when Jesus speaks, it's as if the, a river of life uh, that flows from his mouth is going out. When he says, go cast your nets down right there, this is where we see life happening and, and fish bubbling up to the surface, an abundant number of fish that almost strains their nets to the point of breaking. It's a subtle way of John confirming for us that this is the meeting place of God, resurrected, the temple rebuilt, no longer destroyed. It is Jesus himself. He is where we come face-to-face with God. And so what's Peter's reaction? Verse 7 says, That disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So they're about 100 yards away from the shore, and you can just, you can just see the scene. Peter, it finally clicks who this man is. This doubt that has been swept over his heart is being cleared away, driven away by the revelation that this is Christ, that he's alive, and almost as in a frantic, confused state, he throws on all his clothes and jumps into the water and chases after Christ. He's not, it's, not, it's as if he's not even thinking straight, that it might be a little bit more difficult to swim a full football field with a full set of clothes on, but he's, he's just beside himself. It's a picture of just elation running after Jesus. And yet again, the gospel writer John, who's a masterful writer, has woven a bit of subtlety into this text as well. And that is, when he says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. That verb for put on is literally tied around his waist. He tied around his waist, his outer garment. The reason I say that it, it's subtlety and that there's significance here is because it's, it's a verb that only occurs three times in the entire Bible, and all of those are in this gospel. So one of them is here in chapter 21. The other two happen back in chapter 13. You may remember when we first began this Unveiled series, we began with the scene of Jesus taking aside his garments, laying them to the side putting on a servant's towel and tying it around his waist. It happens two times in that verse. Jesus lowering himself to the point of a servant, tying that towel around his waist, that's the verb, and washing their feet. And he does this and tells the disciples, this is a picture for you that a servant is not greater than his master. As I have done for you, so you ought to do for one another. Is a picture of Jesus saying, following me means becoming a servant as I am a servant. And so here's what I think that, that John has done beautifully in John chapter 21 in this scene. Yes, Peter is excited. He is beside himself. He's running out of joy to Jesus. He's restoring his relationship and connection to Jesus. But it's as if John is telling him that when he does that, when he puts that towel back on himself, it's as if he's resuming the place of servant of Christ. This one that has begun to return to his old way of living has been restored, and he's resuming his place as a servant, a follower of Christ. He is master. I am servant. I am assuming the position that he commanded me to assume. 
And again, I think there's, this, there's wisdom in there for us. There's a reminder there, and it, be, it continues to develop throughout the story, that the call to follow Christ is not just about you and Jesus having your buddy-buddy thing or just uh, being so just enamored with him that, you're just, that you, just, you just love him. That's all you do. You just think about Jesus all day long, and it doesn't really involve any type of dirty work or low-down servant type of work, lowering yourself, dying to self. John is putting those things aside right now, that following Jesus means, chasing after Jesus means assuming his role of servant. So we see that in, in Peter's restoration here. And just one more thing in this section in verse 9. It says, when they, got out, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish already laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of that fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. The point in here is this. Jesus already has breakfast laid out. He already has fish on the table. He's got sliced bread. He's got it laid out. He didn't need for them to go catch breakfast for them. And if that were me, you might, if it weren't Jesus, Jesus gets a pass. If it were somebody else that, like, I'm out here laboring all morning to try to get some breakfast, and then when I get to shore, you already have it laid out, and I didn't need to do any of that work, you might, tempt, you might be tempted to be angry at this person. But Jesus has a, a method to his madness. He didn't need for uh, Peter to work for him to catch all these fish. He already had the fish that Peter needed laid out for breakfast. The point was, the point of this whole miraculous event was to remind Peter of who he is. Remind Peter of who he is. Jesus didn't need the fish. He didn't need Peter's labor. He did what he did to remind Peter of who he is. And that's exactly what our loving Savior does. He will come to you and show you what you need to see of his glory. And his purpose in this world isn't to, um, in this lifetime, eradicate world hunger, though he will inevitably in the age to come, or eliminate all the myriad of problems that we see in our broken world right now. His primary motive is to allow people to see his glory that they might join him in the new world that will alleviate all these things. So let me move on. It's uh, the third section here. We see that, that Peter has moved from a state of being cold to being uh, from chasing or coming to Jesus, from chasing after him. Third, now we see this, this second phase. Maybe you could resonate with him here. And I would say that this ultimately, before we get to the fourth phase, this is ultimately where all of us want to be commissioned by Jesus, verses 15 through 19. Let's read it. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The point is, Jesus addresses him three times clearly in parallel to the way that Peter denied Jesus three times. When, Jesus denied, when Peter denied Jesus three times and then the rooster crowed, that's what Jesus is intending to drive home in Peter's mind, to expose, to bring back out to light, not allowing Peter to just keep this as something hidden, just this, this closet failure, but Jesus puts it right there on display, makes him address it, makes him face his own failure, his own shortcomings. 
And even the way that he begins his questioning when he says, do you love me more than these? What it brings to mind is Jesus, I mean, Peter's uh, brash, naive confidence in his own ability before all the events of the crucifixion happened, that he would never be the one that failed Jesus, that he would never be the one to betray him. There was a time when he was in the midst of all his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 33 says that Peter answered Jesus, though all of they, meaning the disciples that were around him, all of they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So there's a reason why Jesus is now calling Peter out in the midst of the disciples. Do you love me more than these? As if to say, do you want to go back and and adjust that answer that you had before? Belief in your own ability, belief in in confidence in your own faithfulness, your own ability to follow the Lord wholeheartedly in your own strength. All that, Jesus is dealing with all of these false ideas, this false sense of self-confidence, self-worth. He is disabusing Peter of those things now before he ascends into glory and commissions Peter out. He has to address and deal with all these things. Our coming to Jesus is no different. There are patterns of thought. There are ways that we view ourselves. There are ways that we view others. There are ways that we deal with our own situations. All of that that needs to come to the table that Jesus has to deal with. All those things that that all of us could probably think of one thing that we keep uh, repressed down in us, something that we don't want to deal with about ourselves, something that we know that we've failed in or struggle in privately, or maybe it's something that we, we struggled a lot with in the past, and now we still kind of struggle with it, but not so much, and so it's not so much of a big deal. We don't want to deal with it. All those little things, Jesus is saying, no, we're going to lay all this out on the table right now. And he challenges Peter. But the hope here is that Peter is in a, is in a point where he's come to realize that Jesus' knowledge is infinite. Whatever he might have believed about himself before, once the whole denial thing happened, that was proof for him that this God that he follows, this Christ, knows all things. And so by the third time, uh, Jesus asked him this question, and Peter's grieved about it, and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. The reason that's such a hope to us is because Peter then stands as a picture of an imperfect disciple, of a fallible disciple, one that can fail horribly. And yet, knowing that Jesus knows the truth of anything that he says, he can still confidently say, yet you know that this, all of my mess here is still a way of, I love you, underneath all of that failure underneath all that brokenness. I don't get everything right, but there is a basic love here. And he knows that Jesus has the ability to prove whether or not he's true or false. And it seems that Jesus affirms Peter's weak, nevertheless very real love for him. And he deals with those issues, and then he sends Peter out. He's commissioning Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. This is a commissioning for Peter to go and to spread the gospel. And here's where I say that some of us, all of us, this is, this is ideally where we need to be, moving from a state of coldness or indifference to being compelled to, to follow Christ, but that that doesn't end, that doesn't terminate in just a one-on-one relationship with Jesus with no love for the outside world. The call to follow Christ is a call to love those around us with the same type of love that he demonstrated for us, that they might see through us his glory and be drawn to him. And so this is ultimately where we need to be, restored to Christ and following his basic commission to send us out. And yet there's a price for that especially for Peter, 
verses 18 through 19 say, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter is being brought full circle now. Those two words, follow me, could have meant a myriad of things to Peter when he first heard them, when he first met this man, Jesus, of what it meant to follow me when Jesus said those words to him. And now there's a much fuller picture of what it means to follow him that Jesus lays out for him. He's telling him, ultimately, this will cost your life that you do live in a world that hates the light that is shrouded in darkness. And if you stand up for me, if you are truly a trumpet for my salvation, you will be persecuted and you will be killed ultimately. Now, death is not necessarily the fate. Um, martyrdom is not the, the fate of, of all Christians. And especially here in the, the Western world where None of us have really tasted uh, what was very common in the early centuries of the first church. It's easy for us to read passages like this and sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, Jesus isn't really calling me to that level of discipleship, so I'm good. I can move on to the next thing. But I want to just hear the surrender call that Jesus calls Peter to. That is no different for any of his disciples. This is a complete are you willing to die to yourself and to what you hold dear in this world in order to follow me? And I know that those things are scary and the prospect, I mean, there's a reason why he uses the, often Jesus uses the metaphor of death. Death is not viewed as a comfortable thing, but nevertheless, even dying to self, there is a life that is to be had in the very midst of it. And I just want to um, just think for a moment that this is, Jesus said these words to Peter that he was going to face basically a life of persecution that would ultimately end in death uh, prior to his ascension. When you keep that in mind and when you look at Peter's letters in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, although there are a few, just a few pages away in your Bible, like 1 Peter was written somewhere around AD 62, AD 63 some 30 years after Jesus and Peter had this conversation on the shore, on the beach. So that's 30 years of ministry, of hardship, of facing persecution, of facing the prospect of death. And so with all of that in hindsight, having a full view of the call to follow Jesus, how does Peter respond in his own words when he's admonishing his disciples? A place like, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. It's 30 years later. Peter's an old man, probably around his 60s. And he says to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, the God and of God rests upon you. The more that I have been a Christian, and I believe many of you who have walked with Jesus any number of times would uh, see this as well, the more that I become a Christian, the more I am uh, fixated on wanting to explore and unpack the beauty that, that Peter hints at right there where he says, when you're walking with Christ, when you're being willing to lay down your life for his sake, reviled or insulted for his sake, the spirit of glory rests upon you. The spirit of God Almighty rests 
upon you. There is increasingly nothing more that I want in this life but to know all of the fullness of what Peter is describing in this verse. And Peter is telling us that that comes, that, that level of intimacy with the Almighty, with Christ, the, the resurrected King of the universe of glory, comes through trials, through suffering. The more that you understand what Peter is talking about here, the less physical suffering becomes something to be dreaded. And in fact, throughout the New Testament writers, it's not just Peter, it's, it's Paul, it's the rest of the New Testament writers that'll tell you, when trials come upon you, James says it, when trials come upon you, counterintuitively, he says, it is a time to rejoice. Why? Because ultimately, through that trial, Jesus will draw you to himself and you'll experience a depth of knowledge and of closeness and intimacy with him that you could not experience otherwise. And it is worth even your life in this life to know it, to have it. That's what he calls Peter to. That's what he calls us to. And just briefly, this last verse we again just see the humanness, the fallibility of Peter creeping in. This, this fourth phase might be where some of you all find yourselves corrected by Jesus. Just briefly starting in verse 20, he says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, referring to John, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him... He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread, spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but he just said, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is like one of the most unnatural endings to an epic story, like basically this, this, this story of the, the Son of God coming into the world ends with Jesus saying, Peter, you're going to die one day. Peter says, well, what about that guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about it, the end. Like, it's not a, a climactic crescendo here, but it's nevertheless a very real one. Where we're left with is we see Peter's weakness coming in again, just the deceitfulness of the heart, that he moves from doubting Jesus's um, knowledge of his own failure when he denies Jesus three times to now challenging Jesus's knowledge and, and, and trying to manipulate Jesus's knowledge and saying, well, what about that guy? Like, I want to make sure, like, you're saying that you're calling all this from me. Is it fair? What's his fate? Are we in the same boat? Are you, are you demanding the same as him? And just that subtle shift of Peter's gaze off of Christ onto another, we see his weakness there. And Peter, Jesus comes and corrects Peter and, and, and does what he needs to do, admonishes him to steer him back on the path of obedience. And it's at this point, we don't see exactly in this text what happens to Peter, but we know that it's at this point, Peter basically has two options. He can heed the Lord's correction and, and turn back to the path of life of walking with Christ or that bitterness that creeps into the heart, that doubt, that skepticism, that pessimism that creeps into the heart can continue to harden until he finds himself back in the place where he was at the beginning of this chapter in that period of being cold or indifferent, drifting. So often we find ourselves in that same fork in the road. That perhaps you today are, find yourselves in a point where there's something that Jesus is pressing upon you, maybe has been for a long time or is now just pressing on you today. Something that he says, we need to deal with this, this doubt here, this comparing of yourselves with other people around you. We need to address that. This is inhibiting you from chasing after me, from fleeing and, and running after me with reckless abandon and experiencing all that power of the Spirit of God, that the joy that I have in me that I've reserved for you. 
And we find ourselves at a point where we can either listen to his call and allow him to steer us back onto the right path or allow that, that bitterness to fester, to harden, and to coldness and difference. So where are you this morning? Regardless of where you are, you're somewhere on this spectrum. And I believe that Peter is a wonderful example of just what the Lord would have us do, how he would have us to respond, to bring us out of ourselves and to walk in the path of everlasting life with him. So my prayer is just that wherever you are, that you would heed his call, that you would, like Peter, run with reckless abandon to your Savior, knowing all the way what he's calling you to. It is a call to die, yes, but only that you might live. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that even just for a moment that you would take all of us in this room and just give us a brief moment of, of silence to just drive home what you may have been trying to drive home in us for weeks that we have ignored or allowed distraction to crowd out, fears, doubts, skepticism, anger, bitterness, all things that are not born out of the fruit of the Spirit that do not come from you. I pray that you just give us a moment to address those things. Lord, ultimately our prayer is just that we would know you and that you would do whatever it takes as scary and as daunting of a claim or request as that is, that you would do whatever it takes to flood our hearts with your joy. That this, the things of this world would grow strangely dim, that we would come to see you as our ultimate treasure. That you would be like the treasure that's buried in a field that a man for his sheer joy over it sells all that he has that he might purchase that field, that he might have that treasure alone and be perfectly satisfied. Lord, I just pray that you would do that in our hearts today as we go throughout this week. Draw us all to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.